Our text for today comes from Philippians uh, chapter 3, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. I did a flippy. Uh, (laughs) I might be a little sleep deprived. Uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I said it to the worship team this morning, but um, thank God for coffee. Man, alive. It's one of the best things in the world. Uh, my family watches a lot of cooking shows. Do you watch cooking shows? Um, right now we're watching Top Chef, the new season of Top Chef. We weren't able to watch this, the new episode that aired on Thursday because my in-laws were in town, but I love cooking shows. I've watched so many cooking shows, in fact, that if you asked me if I was a good cook, I would say, yes, I am. And if, and if you asked one further question and you said, why are you a good cook? I would not say because I actually do the work of cooking. It's because I've watched so many cooking shows that from time to time I can convince myself that I can throw together a, <laughs> a, a really good meal. Here's the thing about cooking, right? It takes good products, time, intention, the right ingredients, and a little bit of know-how in order to cook, doesn't it? In order, in order to make something uh, that's good. And like, and forgive me for this analogy because it might be a bit of a stretch, and just like cooking, right, the Christian life requires certain ingredients, certain proper ingredients, and a little bit of know-how in order to live it faithfully, as a follower of Jesus. And one of the ingredients that has been missing from the recipe of the Christian life for many Christians over the past year is community. It's Christian community. It's being together, right? This is not anybody's fault particularly, and please don't hear me uh, casting dispersions on anyone because that's not my intention. But Here's the truth, and we've, we've uh, affirmed this in what some of our core values as a church, that we believe that Christian community, close, interconnected personal relationships, are a necessary context within which we can grow and flourish, both as, both as individuals in our personal and emotional lives, but also as we make this journey as followers of Jesus. Personal relationships are vital. We simply can't do this thing alone. There's nowhere in the Bible that communicates to us that we can. And if you wanted to, say, bake a cake, right, you would need all the necessary ingredients. You could technically bake a cake without flour and sugar, but it would be a pretty junky cake, right? It would be one of those, it would be one of those cakes that people who are far too fit try to, try to make people eat, and it's, it serves no purpose at all, right? And, and like that, many of us over the last year have been kind of trying to bake the cake of the Christian life, I'm sorry again for this analogy, without, 
without the ingredient of close personal relationships and community. And so we, uh, particularly because the CDC told us we can, and not just because of that, but that's a, a boon to, to our efforts here. We want to make sure that we're creating environments where we can be life on life, where we can be together in, in relationship, in community. And so with that in mind, at Grace Community, we have this thing called home groups where people can gather in homes and be together. They can, they can be together, and we can build the type of relationships that create the fertile soil. Here's another different, a different analogy. I'm mixing metaphors now. The fertile soil within which our, our walk with Jesus can grow. And so, uh, home groups have started up. They're starting up tonight and this week and last week, actually, technically. And so, I want to encourage you, this is just kind of the pastoral encouragement of the day, that if you're not, uh, if you've spent the last year, like many of us, kind of figuring out what in-person life looks like, um, this is a good time to hop in to a home group. You can, uh, if you don't have a personal relationship with somebody in the room, uh, who's invited you to, to a home group, you can go online and you can sign up at cfgrace.community or you can uh, sign up out in the lobby and we will help get you connected. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, I know that our schedules are crazy. I started coaching baseball two nights a week this week, uh, which if you want to if, if you wanna point a finger at the worst baseball coach in the room, you can point one right up here. But the, uh, so I know, I know life is crazy, but we have to carve out space in our lives for community. To do the best of our ability, we have to. And so uh, whether that's once a m- whether you can make a group once a week or once a month or once every six weeks, some level of engagement is important because we believe at Grace Community that, that Christian community, interpers- close interpersonal relationships are the necessary context within which we follow Jesus. So... Uh, so uh, get in a home group, get to know somebody who's in a home group, and it'll be, I promise you, it'll be a good summer. It's a good time to reconnect. All right? All right? All right, there we go. We're all together now. That was my plug for home groups. Now, uh, today we are talking about humility. Humility. Do I have any humble people in the room? Would you raise your hand if you're humble? We got one. That's good. You need to hear this more than anyone, Danny. Here's the pro- uh, It's really hard to talk about humility, isn't it? It turns out to be a pretty difficult thing to talk about. Because no one becomes humble through sheer force of effort, do they? Uh, you can't will or effort humility. Have you ever met anybody that was trying to put forth effort to be humble? Those people are nauseating, Right? That, like, you don't want to be around people who effort humility. You, I would rather have a genuine, arrogant person <laughs> around me, right, than a fake, humble person. Uh, there are a lot of things in this world that respond to our effort, right? But the Christian virtue of humility doesn't seem to be one of them. Uh, our culture, as an American culture, and this is distinct from the Bible. Our American culture doesn't believe that humility is something that we can actually cultivate either. I don't think, uh, I don't know if you hear about humility as a virtue anywhere other than within the four, four walls of the church nowadays. The only time you hear about humility or the idea of humility in culture is not always a good context. The only, the only time we really hear about humility is when somebody has been humiliated, right? We hear about humiliation, but we don't 
hear about humility. In our culture, we don't talk about virtuous people being humble or cultivating humility. We talk about proud people being humiliated. Humiliation is something that happens to you from the outside, right? It's something that comes on you. It's like the businessman who loses his shirt uh, to an ill-fated deal. It's the athlete who fails to deliver in public. Bill Buckner gets the, hits the, you know, the baseball goes between his legs in the World Series. For anybody who doesn't know that story, I wouldn't either because I'm too young for it, but my dad's a Mets fan, so that's what we, or no, that's a white, Red Sox. There we go, Red Sox. Uh, the Mets had one of those too. Anyways, uh, the Hollywood star who has a very public battle with addiction or some other scandal. This is what we think of when we think of humility, doesn't it? Or being humiliated. Uh, which shows us that for the most part, we don't believe that humility is a good thing in our culture, right? We don't think it's something that can or should be cultivated. It's just kind of the sad state of affairs who, for those who have been brought low by something embarrassing. But the scriptures teach us that humility is a spiritual ethic. It's a virtue that is meant to be cultivated in our lives because it actually leads to something. It is, it is a virtue of the kingdom of God. And kingdom of God people are called in the scriptures to grow in humility, which again feels difficult. Now, specifically in the New Testament, Jesus teaches about humility. And the apostle Paul teaches about humility. Paul has a number of ex uh, virtue lists throughout a number of his different letters. I think he has five of them. He gives lists of virtues. And in three of those five lists of virtues, the Apostle Paul lists humility as near the top of the most important virtues that are to be cultivated by a Christian. And Jesus himself is constantly teaching about humility and the way in which that the kingdom of God belongs to those not who are proud and arrogant and puffed up and unable to see, but rather to those who are humble. Now, what's interesting about this is that in the ancient world, humility was not a virtue. The, 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 the Greek and Roman philosophers that came before Jesus, actually, before Jesus' day, people like Aristotle, used to give lists of virtues. And rather than humility being a virtue in the ancient world, actually pride and arrogance was a virtue. Humility was thought to be something that was for the poor, lonely people who could not attain any measure of status or success. And so for Christians to cultivate the virtue of humility in the first century was an odd thing. It wasn't something that came natural. It wasn't even considered a good thing in ancient culture, specifically in Roman culture of the day. And so on the scene comes Jesus preaching about humility and Jesus' followers, his kingdom people, preaching about humanity or humility as a means of growing into this vision or picture of what Jesus laid out as a flourishing human life. Humility is a, is a, excuse me, is a necessity. I'm going to have a drink of coffee. Humility is a necessity for those of us who want to step into the flourishing life that Jesus, is, Jesus promises. But the question is, how? How do we grow in humility? Because again, it is a difficult thing to talk about. The spiritual writer A.W. Tozer, I think, does a really good job of uh, summarizing this tension or the difficulty that arises when we attempt to talk about humility. Here's what he says. He says, there are two classes of Christians, the proud who imagine they are humble and the humble who are afraid that they are proud. There should be another class, the self-forgetful, 
who leave the whole thing in the hands of Christ and refuse to waste any time trying to make themselves good, they will reach the goal far ahead of the rest. Tozer says in this quote that the only people who truly learn how to be humble are those he calls the self-forgetful. Those people who aren't trying to, to be humble or worried about not being humble enough but instead are focused on something other than themselves, which sounds like a relief, doesn't it? You see, at its core, arrogance or pride is really a preoccupation with ourselves, right? We think about ourselves. We worry about ourselves. We're concerned about the way things affect us. We're concerned about how everyone and everything might have some impact on my life. Now, for some people, this arrogance or pride looks like being puffed up. It looks like being arrogant, right? It's those people who walk into the room believing that they're kind of God's gift to all of us. And that's one way that this can look. But there is also a, a pride, a kind of pride, a kind of self-involvement that doesn't look like arrogance, but can still be pride. It can still be a kind of preoccupation with the self. You might have predominantly negative feelings about yourself, right? You might feel bad. You might be depressed. But, and still, all of your feelings and thoughts are about yourself, right? And I think Tozer captures the struggle between these two types of reality. The arrogant who uh, think they are humble because they're just deluded, right? And those who may seem outwardly humble because they're a little down dog, but they can't seem, but they can't seem to get out of this way in which they're consumed with their own dysfunction or trouble. Their thoughts are not positive, but they're always about themselves. And for Jesus and for Paul, and especially in our teaching text to, to, for today, humility, humility does not look like either of those realities. It doesn't look like an obsession with self that puffs one up, and it doesn't look like an obsession with self that's always worried about what's, what might go wrong or how things might happen to me. Instead, for Jesus and for Paul, humility looks like a kind of self-forgetfulness that helps us primarily not think about ourselves, but think about others. Now, I think one of the primary reasons humility is held out as such an important virtue in the scriptures is because humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is the opposite of pride. Uh, and the reason I think it's so important that humility is because pride has this kind of blinding effect in our lives, doesn't it? Uh, it makes it impossible for us to see and submit to the leadership or the lordship of Jesus Christ. Thomas Aquinas, the uh, early medieval scholar, says it this way. He says, humility removes pride whereby a man refuses to submit himself to the truth of faith. There is nothing in this world more deadly than pride simply because it blinds us to the reality of the world and to the reality of who we are and to the reality of who Jesus is. Pride renders us unable to see the truth clearly. Pride keeps us from seeing Jesus because in order to come to Jesus, we need a certain modicum of humility, don't we? The first wall to be broken down on our way to Jesus is, the, is an initial wall of pride. 
And until you and I can see clearly and admit our own brokenness and sin, we can't effectively come to Jesus and to submit to him, you know? And so you could say, as we make our way to the cross, as we make our way to Jesus, the first step, step one, is humility. It's the humble acknowledgement of our need, our sin. It's, whole, it's, it's contrition. It's, uh, it's this feeling that we are in need of something that we can't supply to ourselves. Now, if you're in this room today and and you have had that feeling of being saved by Jesus, you know the feeling of being humbled by the reality of who God is. You, you know what it is to be convicted of sin, of having this deep sense that you can't continue to live a me-centered life. And instead, you need to, say, you need to live a Jesus-is-Lord-centered life. And that, that very thought is a kind of humility. It's a, it's a necessary humility if we're going to come to Jesus at all. But here's the thing. After we come to Jesus, many of us step into the place of humility when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, right? When we come to acknowledge him as the Lord of the world. And we step into this new reality that is breaking out all over the place because of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. But after we step into that relationship with Jesus, what often happens in our lives is we then step from that place of humility into a kind of self-centered religious righteous, religious self-righteousness. You've seen this in religious contexts all over the place, haven't you? Having become humbled through the knowledge of our own deficiency and our need for Christ, Christians then uh, begin to walk out their faith in a mode of kind of self-righteousness. Like, I've got now got my golden ticket, and I am good to go, and I'm just going to walk around telling everybody what they should do with their lives and how moral I am and how deficient they are, right? There's this mode of religion that just kind of shuts us down after we cross the threshold of faith. But this is not the way that we, that we are supposed to live, and it's not the way that the New Testament writers outline the trajectory of our lives. Christians are called to walk out our faith in a posture of humility, growing in humility as we go, to be transformed into ever more humble people as we walk the path of discipleship. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to, to actually follow Jesus, in, to emulate Jesus in his humility. So the question then again becomes, because we've been circling around to it this morning, how do we become humble, right? Do I have to experience something horrible in my life in order to be humble, right? Do I have to have some catastrophic failure? Well, the truth is no. There are plenty of people who have been quote-unquote humbled who don't come out of that experience hum humble, right? And there, and there are plenty of people who have never been publicly shamed in any significant way who step into a place of humility and follow Jesus and, be, and grow in humility as they walk the path of faith. But the question is, how do we do it? How do we, how do we grow in humility? I think our teaching text for today helps us to see and understand a bit of how, maybe a, a few keys, of how we actually do the work of following Jesus and growing in humility. In our teaching text for today, Paul is explaining to the Philippians 
about how God has called them all to get along, right? This is, this is functionally in Philippians 2, an exhortation about being a people together, of being of one mind and of one heart and of getting along and displaying the goodness and grace of God out into the world by virtue of the way this church lives their lives as a gathered people. You see, the primary witness of the early church was not the things they said, but rather the countercultural life that they embodied as a community. And so for Paul to explain to this church the way in which they are to get along and the way in which they are to embody this countercultural reality, he says, you got to get along, right? You got to figure out how to be a people together. And what he says is you need to be humble. You need to be humble. And the way he says first that you, you grow in humility, the way you become a kingdom community in the world, witnessing to the reality of who Jesus is, in the unity of spirit, through the bond of peace, carrying love with you wherever you go, is to grow in humility. And what he says there is interesting. The way you grow in humility, according to Paul, is you have the same mindset as Christ, he says. You have the same mindset as Christ. You see, according to Paul, and I think this is important, we grow in humility not by working at humility, but my, but my, but by, excuse me, but my, but by meditating on and communing with Jesus. That's what, that's what Paul says, right? Have the same mind as Christ. And then, and then Paul launches into this beautiful Christian poem. Most scholars argue that that poem that you see in Philippians 2 is actually an early Christian hymn. It was probably something his audience was familiar with. And he uses it as a means to explain to his audience that they are called to be like Jesus, that they are to put on, they are to meditate on the character of Jesus, and they are to commune with Jesus both to see Jesus as an example or an exemplar of the type of, uh, as the of the type of humi humility they are to grow in, but also to commune with the person of Christ, to get up close to a person with this type of humility, right? The quintessential humble person in all of the world, and thus to grow in humility. Now, this concept of having the mind of Christ is something that Paul talks about multiple times. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it in Romans chapter 12 a little bit. But to have the same mind as Christ is not simply to think the thoughts that Christ thought, right? We're very cognitive people in the West. We think that the way we achieve stuff is by gathering information. And what Paul is talking about here is not the gathering of information. It's not cognitive assent, right? But rather, it is an ability given to the follower of Jesus. It's basically like the courage given to the follower of Jesus to begin to walk in the steps of Jesus, to act humbly in ways towards other people, just like Jesus acted. In order to put on the mind of Christ, what we need to do is to begin the process, however difficult it might be, to put our own desires kind of on the back burner for a moment and begin to put the needs of others ahead of our own. This is difficult at first, isn't it? Well, I will say it's difficult at first. It's difficult for your whole life. <laughs> so just get used to it. 
but like a muscle that we work out, right? This ability to grow in thinking about others more than we thinking, think about ourselves is something we're called to do. And to put on the mind of Christ is to put on the character or purposes of Jesus in such a way is that we can walk out or walk behind Jesus to follow him in this way. And as we do it over time, what happens? Over time, we become a humble person. Not because we were efforting our way to humility. Not because when somebody gave us a compliment, we kind of like deferred, right? But rather because in Christ, we see an example of somebody who puts the needs of others before our own needs. And there are examples and opportunities to do this every second of every single day. I was on my phone yesterday. <laughs> you were too, don't worry about it. I was on my phone yesterday, and I was sitting in the, our living room, and there was something happening in the kitchen. I don't know what it is. I just heard noises, and I thought to myself, I could go help. But I'm reading a tweet about the Iowa Hawkeyes, and that feels much better to me, right? In that moment, in that, in that moment, I could very easily have just put the needs of four other very stressed out individuals ahead of my own, right? And I eventually did. It just took longer than it should have. Here's the thing. There are numerous opportunities every day to put the needs of others ahead of our own needs, right? There's no, it's, it's, not, it's not a shock, right? And some of you feel like, maybe I've been putting the needs of other people ahead of my own needs for my entire life. It's called being a parent, right? Or not your entire life, but as long as you've been a parent. So when is somebody going to meet my needs for once? Thank you very much. Right? This is how we think. And it's important that we, ca that we care for ourselves, right? It's important that we do self-care. It's important that we take time uh, away to be, to, you know, to fill our tanks so that we can care for the people around us. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing or that we should constantly just wear ourselves out on behalf of other people. But what I'm saying is there is a default setting in the mind of every human to put ourselves at the center and everyone else in our lives around us as kind of like our handmaids, right? That everyone else exists to please me and to make me happy and to care about what I'm doing. And if they don't meet this expectation that I actually didn't even verbalize to them, well then, they've let me down and they're a bad person or blah, 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 right? Putting on the mind of Christ means taking a kind of different attitude to that. It means articulating a way of being in the world that doesn't always ask the question of what will I get out of this? Here's the easiest way I can, I can say to, to think through this. Uh, pride simply asks the question, what will I get out of this? Will this be worth my time? Right? That is a pretty basic thought that all of us have all the time. What benefit will this, provide, will this thing that I'm doing provide for me? Will, will, this, will this person provide me with some kind of help? Will they make my life easier or better in some way? Will this activity in, uh, help me? Will it, uh, will it further my career? Will it help me make friends? But those who have been saved or transformed by Jesus, those who follow Jesus, those who make the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, 
are empowered, the scriptures tell us, to ask a different question. And that question is this. What benefit will this have for others? What benefit will my life have for other people? This is what Paul says, right? In verse 4, in verse 3 and 4, he says this. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Paul is not saying here that, that humility is going, oh, I'm just a horrible person and they're better than me, right? That's not what he's concerned about. If, you, if you're constantly trying to value, your, uh, value yourself against other people, there's some issues there that need to be worked out. But Paul is not saying that the primary thing we need to be doing is kind of like lowering our own self-esteem, right, and walking around believing that everyone is better than us. Humility does say uh, the people around me have something to contribute that I might not have. That's, that's true. And humility is open to the ideas and perspectives of other people and is not shut off or shut down. But primarily, it's this ability to not think about what you need and rather to think about what others need. Here's something I found in this life. And again, I don't do it perfectly. I don't think I ever will. But thinking about myself, first and foremost, is far more tiring than thinking about other people. You will exhaust yourself constantly spinning and worrying about what you're doing and how you're, how you're functioning and how everybody's treating you, that is an exhausting place to be. But to, but to pour yourself out on behalf of other people, for the sake of other people, to not be worried about yourself, to embrace this posture, like Tozer says, of self-forgetfulness, to just leave it all to Christ and to, to take on the character, the virtue of Christ that thinks about other people before ourselves, well, that is an energizing place to be, I believe. You know, when asked, when people are asked in, at the end of life, like, what, what, why, why, what, was, what was it all worth? What, what, is this, what was this life all about? They never say, like, it was, about, it was about the lady at Starbucks being nice to me, right? No, they said, I got to live life with a, uh, with a group of people that I loved, and I got to pour myself out on their behalf. I got to do something significant. There's a, there's a kind of life-giving energy that comes to us when we learn humility, when we learn the art of self-forgetfulness, when we learn to ask the question, how will this benefit others? You know, I think there's kind of two salvations. This is bad theology, but I, I think it's good preaching. I think there's kind of two salvations. There's a salvation away from the world to Christ, and then there's kind of a salvation away from our own self-interest back to the world. You see, Jesus wants us all to be people who break ourselves, just like he did, break ourselves open and give ourselves to the world. And that is the fundamental center of what humility is. It is a self-forgetfulness. It is a life uh, poured out on behalf of others. It is putting the priorities of the kingdom of God and the community of faith ahead of our own. It is caring deeply, not about our own interests, but about the interests of others. 
And here's the, here's the beautiful part. When everybody's doing that, everybody's needs are met. Right? When, <clears throat> when everybody's looking out for number one, nobody's needs are met. Right? But when everybody's looking out for everybody else, no one stands in need or in want. And what Paul is saying is if you want to be a community of kingdom people, you need to stand together caring for the interests of the other. And by so doing, you will inevitably have somebody that cares for your interests. Inevitably. This was the same philosophy of the early church in the book of Acts. When it said some of the people sold extra property that they had and they gave it to those who didn't have any. And what happened? No one was in need because everybody cared more about the other than they cared about themselves. This is how we witness to the reality of a crucified and resurrected Lord by putting the needs of others before our own, by stepping into this place of self-forgetfulness and humility as a means of witnessing to the reality of our good God in the world. So I, for one, want to get my needs met. And so how, I do, how do I do that? Don't worry about my needs, right? I don't worry about my needs. And I instead worry about the needs of my brothers and sisters. And inevitably, inevitably, in a community like that, we'll get our needs met. We'll find in that place a place of hope and a place of life, a place of purpose and a place of significance place of deep meaning as I break myself open and I give myself to everyone else. Would you stand with me this morning? And as, uh, just in an attitude of prayer as we go, I just want to pray this very simple prayer together. That God would make us a humble people. God would simply make us a humble people. He would make us a people who don't care first and foremost for our own needs, that I not be a person who cares about my own needs, but rather that I would care about first and foremost about the needs of others. And, and again, just a disclaimer. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. It's not easy. I'm not saying that it's something we learn uh, in two weeks or three years or 20 years, but I am saying that as we allow ourselves to be captured by the person of Jesus, as our imaginations begin to be formed by his reality and his purposes, what then becomes, what then happens is that we look back over our lives and over, over a longer period of time, we realize that we are becoming more humble and the kingdom of God is springing up in our midst in, place, in places and in ways that we never thought possible. Let's pray to that end. Father, we love you. And today we pray, God, that you would make us a humble people. Father, uh, we all struggle with this. This is, a, this is a com as common a sin as there exists. There, not one of us in this room is caught out of the problem of being self-centered and prideful, God. And so today I pray, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a gathered people, as a church, as a community of grace, if you will, that we would be a people of humility, that we would care for the needs of those 
uh, that are sitting next to us and around us before we care for our own needs, that we would not have an attitude of self-protection and self-preservation, but rather we would have an attitude like Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so he humbled himself and he became obedient as a servant and he gave his life and poured it out on our behalf, God. Would we look to Jesus? Would we center our lives on Jesus? Would we love and commune with Jesus? And then by virtue of that, would we go in relationship towards other people just like Jesus did in a self-forgetful manner, in a way that was in a, in a, with a posture that's more concerned with others than it is for ourselves? Jesus, we pray that you would make us that kind of people, that you would make us that type of kingdom community, that we might display the goodness and grace of our God out into the world. Jesus, would you do that deep work in our hearts today, this week, and for the rest of our lives? And as we go from this place, would we go not looking again for our own needs to be met, but how we can meet others' needs? And we pray it all today in the name of Jesus. Amen? And amen. Hey, here's one thing I want you to do. Uh, greet one another before you go. All right? Talk a little bit. Uh, my father-in-law, who was my pastor growing up, he had this phrase before, everyone would, before you left. He always said, uh, before you get away, shake somebody's hug somebody's neck and shake somebody's hand. Don't hug any necks. But... If, if you're comfortable, right, and if the person you're, you're, you're comfortable with, uh, please, please, uh, it's time to start building relationships again. All right? All right. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.